Hello. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I am not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. This week, we continue part two of our listener request from Bill and Donovan, the case of Peter and Christine Demeter. But before we get things really started, we wanted to play a voice memo that one of our incredible listeners, Don, DM'd us on Instagram all the way from Dubai. Do you hear that, people? Here's Don. Hello, I am listening to you with my morning coffee as the sun is rising in Dubai. And I'm Canadian, so listening to it. Muriel, don't say the U in Mississauga. It's just Mississauga. It's not Mississauga. (laughs) It makes me giggle every single time. But if you're going to be recording two more episodes of this, it's Mississauga. Just so you know. It's like saying Illinois. You don't say the S in Illinois. But I also wanted to say that I absolutely love your guys' podcast. And I feel like... We're all best friends. <laughs> and it delights me every single Wednesday when there is a new episode posted. It just really makes my day. So thank you, you guys. Really, really like it a lot. <laughs> okay, well, Instagram kind of brutally cut off the l- very last little part of that. But we like you a lot, Don. And that message, wow, that really hit home. Yeah, that was really sweet. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for everyone for your help. I did get a few messages. This <laughs> <laughs> is Saga. And on further inspection, I just wanted to say, I yeah. wasn't even reading the word correctly. Oh, really? It's not even spelled the way I was pronouncing <laughs> But I really thought I was nailing it. So that's great. I love you, Don. You're my ride or die. (laughs) I'm so glad you called in. (laughs) Muriel, I played that for Muriel. We're just laughing. And she like laughs out of control, lose her breath. She's like getting her breath. And she goes, (gasps) I'm so sensitive. (laughs) She just wants to do right by you guys, you know? You know, but... I will say my weakness is pronunciation. I'm trying like, I really, I think part of it Mm -hmm. is that I'm medium smart, you Uh, know? So uh a lot of these words I haven't read before. And then the other part is when you're typing them. Yeah. I don't know whether people do this, but in my mind, I just say them the way that I like that. Like I was like, Peter Demeter, Peter Demeter over and over again. I, I have to like force myself not to say it that way. Because when I'm typing it, my brain is like, um, <laughs> imagine Homer Simpson getting his act together and trying to do a murder podcast. It's really, really close to that. All right, guys. All right. This week, if you haven't listened to the part one, go uh-huh. back and listen to it, or else yeah. this probably won't make a lot of sense. It might make some sense. Uh, but we're talking about in 1973, fashion model Christine Dimitar was found murdered in the double garage of her Mississauga, Ontario home. Uh, in this episode, Peter Dimitier is on trial and bizarre witnesses are coming out of the Canadian woodwork. Oh, nice. All right. And as always, we want to thank the newest members of our Patreon. Shout out to Mariah and Laura for signing up. We are feeling the love. Thank you so, thank so you much. Thank you so much. Muriel, you want to give these fools a warning? All right. 
Remember, everyone, this is a true story involving murder, violence, drugs, adult themes, etc. So if any listeners are like Nick and they don't want to hear about those kind of things, please consider listening to a different podcast. And we'll probably joke and curse. So if you don't like those things, turn us off. All right, Nikki, are you ready to hear this story? No! Okay, let's get started. think we are getting into a groove of a new tradition here at Muriel's Murders. What's that, Nikki? Which is that for multiple part episodes, I shall be the one to give a recap of where we left off. That's my favorite part. All right. So it's 1973 in Canada. Stop. <laughs> I feel like that's not how you say it. Okay, that's, that's just for Don, you know. A multilingual mother slash model slash impressive home chef named... Christine Demeter has been beaten to death in a truly horrific manner in her garage while her three-year-old daughter was inside the otherwise empty house. There are no witnesses, no sign of forced entry, no signs of anything being robbed or burgled, no signs of sexual assault, no fingerprints, no murder weapon at all, and basically a truly alarming amount of zero evidence or clues whatsoever. Okay. Okay. There is, however, a husband, Peter Dimiter. Okay. He was born into Hungarian royalty, but by the age of 10, World War II left the existing systems of power in rubble, and his family was either dead or poor and punished. Uh, like they were like you know, couldn't get ahead in life anymore because of their bloodline. Okay. He eventually snuck away and got to Canada. And by 1973, he is a very successful and very clearly crooked businessman in the real estate business. Okay, great. Not sure why I wrote it like that. Uh, For many years, he spoke to his best friend slash lackey. Because I don't really know why they're best friends, except for he keeps them around. This guy's name is Chaba. Um, and sorry, what, what did I write here? Okay. <laughs> For many years, he, is, <laughs> he spoke to his best friend slash lackey Chaba about killing Christine. He, oh, you know what my problem is? <laughs> I, don't, I'm, I, I actually write out the word slash. So it's really confusing. I you should do? Just, yeah, I wrote friend S-L-A-S-H lackey. And I did that when I said like multilingual mother slash model. Anyways, um, he's been talking to Chapa for years about killing Christine. Uh, Peter does have an airtight alibi for the night of the murder, but Chaba has been cooperating with police, wearing a wire, and is just about to testify against Peter. Basically, Peter is the one and only suspect as this episode begins, but there's been a string of unsolved murders in the area lately with all the victims being young women. There's some weird Hungarian mafia shit going down the trial is about to start and that's all i remember okay good you remembered a lot Mm -hmm. that's great yeah yeah so that's about it um i will do a quick correction so Uh basically there was a preliminary trial and that's where chapa testified it's not the actual trial okay and so his testimony in large part is the thing that then sent peter dimiter to trial so okay. now we're gonna start at the murder trial okay a nerd yeah. freaking mock trial over here wow all right logistics <laughs> riveting logistics <laughs> slash riveting <laughs> stupid ass all right 
All right, we're going to start. You ready? Yeah, hell yeah. Okay, so it's the fall of 1974. Mm. Peter Dimitir is charged with non-capital murder and the death of his wife, Christine. His best friend, Chaba Salati, is working with the prosecution, but as the evidence is largely circumstantial, as you said, like there's no murder weapon, there aren't any fingerprints, yeah. Peter's feeling confident that he'll beat the charges. Peter's lover, Marina, mm-hmm. the person who's a part of the motive package that people are putting together. Mm-hmm. At this point, they've found out that Peter and Christine's marriage was on the rocks. Mm-hmm. His lover was this woman named Marina from Vienna. And Christine also had a million dollar life insurance policy. Right. So the motive feels very strong based uh-huh. on all those things. So the woman who's involved in this motive has now flown from Vienna back to Canada to be with Peter. To show a sign of support. I think maybe it's also important. I should have said this too. Peter has a history of violence against Christine. Yes. Yeah. So Peter and Marina are now back in Canada. She's supporting him and they are constantly being photographed together. And by most accounts, she seemed to really love the publicity. She's a model. Those kinds of things are great for her. She's posing for these pictures. She's like milking the camera. Mm -hmm. So they're going out in order to be photographed. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. So 20-year-old, I'm sorry, 29-year-old Marina tooled around with Peter over the summer as he awaited his trial. But he's moody, he's unshaven, depressed, mm-hmm. wouldn't spend any money, and was generally a bummer. Right. So And his house was getting dirtier and dirtier, if I remember correctly. Yeah, so okay. things are kind of falling apart for mm-hmm. him. It was obviously kind of a bad look for Peter to be all over the newspapers, photographed with his younger Viennese model affair partner. Yeah. But the spin the lawyers came up with was like, how could such a beautiful girl like this be so devoted to someone who killed his wife, right? <laughs> yeah. Also, they started mm-hmm. asking her to dress a little more conservatively. So she photographed as this wholesome, devoted, wifey material. The lawyers asked her. Yes. Got it. Mm-hmm. Now, prior to the trial, yeah, the defense, the prosecution members of the police department, the judge, everyone was sequestered in a Holiday Inn. (laughs) The same Holiday Inn? Yes. So I just want to talk about this. So this is like setting the tone for this thing, right? Uh So the defense, which includes Peter and Marina, who are sharing a room together, Peter's lawyers, Joseph Pomerant, and then the young upstart, William Greenspan. The prosecution included the Crown Attorney, John Greenwood, and his assistant, Leo, the Tiger McGuigan. (laughs) And along with them, there's Superintendent William Taggart, that you remember, Uh heading the investigation into this murder. The cop, right? The Honorable Justice Campbell Grant of the Supreme Court of Ontario. And like a ton of police officers. So they all took up shop in this Holiday Inn in London, Ontario, where the Uh trial was to take place. And this was like 70s plush. So Uh bright uh orange carpet, fake leather couches, and like this (laughs) elaborate dining room where they had all their meals. And Uh they had card uh tables set up for all the lawyers to have their meetings. Uh So they were all around each other Constantly. <laughs> Just a big ass slumber party. Yeah. Can I ask two dumbass questions? Is it Greenspan as in the famous Greenspan family? I don't believe so. I went to um college actually. My RA was a Greenspan. Wow. <laughs> Pretty cool. I'm pretty <laughs> impressed by that. 
<laughs> you bet you didn't know that, huh? No. And then also the assistant, one of the assistants got the nickname The Tiger. Yeah. He was That's just, a badass assistant. Yeah, and he was also very tiny. That's a That plays into this. It's like a tiny tiger. Uh, you don't have to Google the Greenspan thing if you don't want to. Oh, it's too late. She's doing it. No, I don't know. I don't think that they're related, but okay. I can't tell. So maybe they are. <laughs> okay. All right, okay. let me get back to it. Thanks, thanks, thanks. <laughs> so like I said, they're all staying in this Holiday Inn. Not only that, but all of their rooms were in a block. So Taggart, Pomerant, and Peter, so the lawyer, the investigative officer, <laughs> and the suspect are all right next to each other. They're like 401, 402, 403. All right. Now, the judge, they found out, was staying in a kind of fancier part of the hotel called the Tower. So word got around and there was this crazy rush for them to all try to transfer their rooms to the Tower because they thought it was like a way better situation. But spoiler alert, it was not really that much better. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, oh, they weren't even trying to buddy up with the judge. No. They just thought they could get better accommodations. Like, How come he gets a better... He's in the Tower. I <laughs> yeah. deserve to be in the Tower, right? So there's like all this... Like, just petty, you know, whatever. Uh, Uh, But all in all, right, the Holiday Inn was Party Town 5000, right? right, (laughs) Just kidding. There was no drinking allowed or having any fun. (laughs) In the hotel in 1973? There wasn't, um, uh, Tegart was like nobody from my department is going to do that. Everyone was kind of oh, very I see. strict, but also it is a murder trial. Right? Yeah. I mean, they should be, I mean, yeah. it seems insane that they're in the same hotel, but they talk about how I know they talk about how basically they, there's a pool outside uh-huh. and it's still like a really beautiful, warm, late, summer and yeah. fall mm-hmm. and people just longingly stare at the pool. Cause they just <laughs> have to sit in these, at these card tables and work at this hotel. Okay. Uh, but basically, they just all awkwardly ate meals together in this low-rent resort environment. Uh-huh. Uh, Superintendent Taggart hated eating with Peter's defense lawyer, Pomeroy, because he would always eat off of other people's plates. <laughs> <laughs> and Judge Grant couldn't stand Peter uh-huh. because... Peter would bow and click his heels every time he saw the judge in the hallway. Like as a bit? Well, I guess it was like kind of more of an old school Hungarian way of communicating oh. respect oh. to an older person. Uh-huh. But the judge definitely thought he was just being an asshole. <laughs> so it, was, it was just like constant that type of thing. Yeah. It's like weird, you know, awkward <laughs> work function for... Sit <laughs> right, just like waiting for someone to be done, like cranking the raisin brand dispenser in right. the morning. Like, God, he always goes four cranks on the cereal machine. Right, 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 right. So that's how this trial begins mm-hmm. in late September. And when the trial began, it seemed like the defense had a slight advantage in that in addition to a strong motive, right, the $1 million life insurance policy, the lover, the failing marriage, the prosecution only had two real pieces of evidence. Mm-hmm. Chaba's story and these ambiguous sounding tapes from the phone and wiretaps. Right. Right? Yes. So, For anyone who doesn't remember last week, it would really sound like Peter is like fully ad- confessing to the murder, but then there would just be chunks of audio missing, like cars going by. Yeah. Or f- raccoons jumping out of garbage cans or a right. random firework display suddenly that drowned out the most important bits of the, like this connective tissue between sentences. Right. It's like, it sounds very suspicious, but there's yeah. nothing actually admitted. There's right. no names. There's no dates. There's no confession. There's nothing mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. And 
At this point, Judge Grant hadn't ruled on whether the tapes would even be admitted into evidence. So if he ruled against the tapes being into, admitted into evidence, yeah. you basically just have Chaba's story and the motive, and that's it in yeah. terms of the prosecution. The only major win for the prosecution at that point was that against the wishes of the defense, Judge Grant ruled that the jury would not be sequestered. So it's this huge international story yeah. it's in all the newspapers right it's a like the biggest story in canada at the time and the defense really wanted the jury to be sequestered so they wouldn't be unduly influenced right totally but in part judge grant was like yeah you know there's tons of press conference and the trial is really huge because peter keeps taking photos with his sexy viennese model girlfriend <laughs> like a tasteless butthole uh -huh. he's like that is a big part of why this is like not going well for him mm -hmm. so i'm not going to sequester these people because you guys are clearly not trying to sequester yourselves did right? you say tasteless butthole yes oh, that's a thought <laughs> So the trial began in late September 1974, but there was still a significant amount of police work and backdoor bargaining happening behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. Sometime in the summer of 1974, prior to his trial, while out on bail and kind of managing his properties, Peter found a leaking toilet in one of his properties, and he called a contractor friend named Ferenc Stark to help him fix it. Now, Ferenc was Hungarian. He had immigrated to Canada in 1967 after serving in the French Foreign Legion. And he was basically like a go-to guy for Peter up until Christine's death. And then after Christine's death, he hadn't really heard from Peter until mm -hmm. he had called him to kind of help him with the toilet thing. Go-to guy, like a handyman. Like a handyman, a uh -huh. contractor. He would do work for him. Sure, all right. So the two men met at the property, they caught up and they start chatting. And Ferenc decided to tell Peter this funny story about Christine. So he tells the story yeah. and he finishes fixing the toilet and the two shake hands and they part ways, right? It's the end of the story. About a week after that encounter, Peter shows up to Ferenc's house with his lawyers, Pomerant and Greenspan. And they ask him to take a ride with him. So they go to Pomerant's office and Ferenc retells his story. Ferenc says in 1971 or two, he's really bad with dates apparently. I'm getting, I'm getting, a, my heart is starting to beat. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, what's Christine been up to? All right, what's it? Okay. Ferenc said mm -hmm. he was doing a job on the Oriole Parkway right next to where the Dimitares had their first house before moving to Mississauga. Uh, so he was working over there when Christine spotted him over the fence and waved him over. Christine and Ferenc were friendly, but they didn't know each other very well. At any rate, she invited him to come over to the house after he was done because she said she had a business proposition for him. All right. So Ferenc comes over. No one is home. Christine is totally alone. They sit at the table. She offers him a drink. And then she asks him point blank, would you be willing to sell me your hunting rifle? So at some point, uh -huh. Christine had been hanging out with Chaba and Ferenc had been talking to Chaba about how he wanted to sell one of his hunting 
rifles his gun. Right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so she had heard that. And then now is saying, actually, I'm the one who. Wants yeah, I'm to on buy the market. It. I'll buy. I'll buy a hunting rifle. Right. She says, she wanted to buy his hunting rifle, and she wanted Ferenc to say that he'd been at the house with Chaba instead of her, and Chaba was the one who bought the rifle. She says, I want to buy this, but if anyone mm-hmm. asks, say it was Chaba. It was not me. Then she pulled out three thousand dollars in hundred dollar bills out of her purse and tried to pay him. So according to Ferenc, he declined. Yeah. He said, I'm not going to sell you this rifle. I don't want to do it. And right. he kind of never thought about it again. He just uh-huh. put it out of his mind. But Peter's lawyers were obviously pretty pumped, right? Yes. Because now they can possibly link Chaba to some shady shit with Christine mm-hmm. and a gun. Right. So we don't know why, but we know there's some sort of connection here. Okay. Now, meanwhile... The defense wasn't the only group getting some little nugs of game-changing evidence. Am I supposed to be like weirdly having adrenaline going right now? (laughs) I can't tell if you're, I can't tell if this is, are you just manipulating me? I can't tell what's going on right now. I'm just telling you this story. Oh yeah, you're just telling a story. Am I just like a huge rube? I can't tell what the hell is going on. Just sit back and like. I've lived through real trauma. I've had bad things happen to me. I know the darkness of life. This is insane. Why am I just like? Ugh. Well, I don't know, man. Maybe you should just embrace it. That's a true crime podcast. All right. All right. So now other this. shit is happening. Okay, shut up. All right. <laughs> so, like I said. Mm-hmm. The prosecution got some little nugs of game-changing evidence around the same time. On October 1st, 1974, just a week or so after Peter's murder trial began, Mm -hmm. Detective Sergeant Chris O'Toole got a call from a rat. So this rat's name is Gyla Norman Virag, and he was basically the great snitch of the Hungarian underworld in Toronto. (laughs) Uh And to protect his identity... He was branded Mr. X. So that's how I'll refer to him. Okay. I remember Mr. X, you mentioning him last time. Right. Mr. X had a tip for police. The name of Christine's killer. Okay. So Mr. X says the name of Christine's killer is Casca. That's the Hungarian word for the duck. And Mr. X added the duck lives somewhere in Toronto. So the cops, they're like, crazy tip, crazy snitch. Let's check it out. So they look for the duck everywhere, but they come up empty handed. Basically, nothing panned out. They thought maybe he sold hot dogs for a living and they were checking all these hot dog stands. They can't find him until a different snitch was like, oh, you mean cut lip Costco, the gambler? (laughs) He lives over there. <laughs> so, so, cut lip. Cut lip. Costco, the gambler. This guy's like Mr. X says it's. The I know. Dark, I get right? it. But so but I'm it. saying he has a cut lip. I am assuming that's what. That okay. <laughs> Old cut lip the duck. Yeah, cut lip the duck gambler. All right. So he lives right over there. So detectives uh-huh. show up to the duck's apartment, and they knock on the door, and. They're greeted by Duck's common-law wife, Maria, and their 12-year-old daughter, Susan. 
Maria says the duck had flown the coop and was probably in Hungary. According to Maria, the duck was acting hella suspicious in the spring of 1973, Mm -hmm. having these tense, hush-hush meetings with shady dudes in their living room. And then one morning in the summer, he packed up in a hurry, gave her some money wrapped in a scroll of papers, and told her to hide it somewhere. Mm -hmm. He told her he got a bunch of money for telling a millionaire that he'd beat up his Austrian wife. And instead of doing that, he was going to take the money and take off to Hungary. Okay. He said he was cheating some guy named Frankie. And then he just, you know, had her hide this money, mm-hmm. piled into a car with a couple of friends from the meeting the night before and took off for the airport. So he's gone. Okay. Because of the Iron Curtain, police in Hungary didn't openly communicate with authorities from the West. There was kind of a lag in the pipeline mm-hmm. so criminal expats would often head back to hungary to avoid extradition that was kind of common so those guys were heading over there right yeah so after the duck flew the coop <laughs> don't say that <laughs> shame on you <laughs> maria started getting these phone calls from people looking for money uh-huh. specifically this money that she had stuffed in a chair leg on her front deck so the calls became more and more threatening until a man named frankie started coming by her place in the summer of 1973 so maria was able to get frankie out of the apartment she was able to send him away but she was just so depressed from all the drama she went for a walk and tried to cut herself a bouquet of flowers from a public park. So she's over there trying to cut these flowers. She's stealing some neighborhood flowers. She's just sad. She wants, yeah. she wants to brighten her day, right? And yeah. so a cop comes up and stops her. And this cop is so nice to her, she decides to tell him everything. The problem is she can't really read, write, or speak English. You mm-hmm. know, She only really speaks Hungarian. So she grabs him, she pulls him over to the apartment, and she shows him the money wrapped in this paper that she can't read. And, you know, the cop takes some notes, but he never followed up. Maria barely spoke English, and it looks like the whole story was lost in translation. Uh huh. So there was a little hint, but it, nothing really gained traction. Okay, okay. Then the duck returns to Canada in the fall of 1973, and took off again after he jacked all the remaining cash and had Marina change the hiding place of the papers. So at this point, all Marina has is the papers, the duck has all the money, and he leaves for good. Uh Uh-huh. And you're saying the summer, and then, sorry, Christine was murdered in the summer. Right. Okay. So essentially the duck started acting shady in the spring mm-hmm. and then in the summer all everything went down in the early summer Got and it. then he disappeared mm-hmm. and so people are looking for him looking for him and he's in hungary he came back after the winter he came back in the early spring around february in 1974 for the very last time mm-hmm. Got the money and left again right so the money is gone and he was in the apartment for the very last time And Maria said he just stayed in the apartment the entire time he was visiting, waiting for a phone call that never came, terrified of Frankie showing up, Mm -hmm. right? So after that, he leaves for Hungary, and she only heard from him one more time, and that's when he called to ask her to forward all his mail to his mother's house. So he's just gone now. Yeah. At the end of the story, investigators figured the roll of papers was gone, 
But Maria was like, oh, no, no, that's just <laughs> under my mattress. Yeah, you, you want guys, those? You guys want to see it? Uh-huh. Yeah, yes, absolutely. So they pull the roll of papers out from under Maria's mattress and they roll them out on the bed. And the papers is a set of blueprints. And the blueprints are for a proposed townhouse on Winchester Avenue designed by Peter Dimitir's architect, Leslie Wagner, and owned by Eden Gardens Limited. Remember, that's the company yes. that was founded by Peter Dimitar with the money most likely scammed from his fellow Hungarian immigrants right. in an international money transfer scheme. Yeah, immigrants slash uh, refugees. I mean, it was pretty much, yeah, he he really hurt people who, were, who needed help. Right, yes. So Maria hands over the blueprints and gives detectives the business card that the scariest Frankie dude had left with her the year before. And the business card had two phone numbers listed. So one of the detectives cross-checked Peter's address book with the business card. And on the very back page was a number that matched one of the phone numbers on Maria's business card, right? right. Mm-hmm. That is the number for Ferenc Stark. Ferenc the toilet fixing handyman <laughs> yeah. who Christine wanted to buy a gun from was also tough man Frankie who had been terrifying the duck's wife. Got it. Whoa. Same All guy. right. Yep. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So on October 30th, cops tracked down Frankie Stark and arrested him in connection with the murder of Christine Dimitir. They busted into Frankie's trashed out apartment, rummaged around and found a subpoena in the pocket of a jacket from Palmer and Greenspan, the defense attorneys, Mm -hmm. right? So they know he's been talking. They bring him back to the station. And now with police pressure on him, Frankie confessed to a whole lot more. He had only told Peter's lawyer half of the story. Uh Uh-huh. According to Frankie, One night in 1972, about eight months after Christine tried to buy the gun off of him, Frankie got a call from Peter Dimitir. Peter asked Frankie to drive him on an errand. So Frankie picked him up. They did the errand. They landed back at the Dimitir home where Gigi the maid made them sandwiches. And over sandwiches, Peter asked Frankie if he knew anyone who could do a special job. Right. So according to Frankie, Frankie says, okay, well, what? (laughs) Right. Peter says, I just need an accident to happen. Again, Frankie's like, dude, what? Mm -hmm. What kind of accident? And Frankie says Peter wouldn't elaborate, but he subtly changed the subject to how much he hated his wife. (laughs) So he's doing the exact same thing he did with Chaba. That's how he spoke to Chaba. Exactly. Right. So eventually Frankie was like, Okay, cool, dude. I gotta go. (laughs) Mm -hmm. He didn't want to get involved, but Peter kept calling calling him and bugging him. And so finally, according to Frankie, he was like, fine, fine. I'll ask the duck, okay? Okay. okay. I'll kill your wife. (laughs) He didn't have the duck's phone number or anything. So he said he put the word out that he was looking for the duck. And eventually, the duck called him. Right, so what Frankie did is he just said, I'm looking for the duck, this is my number, and Mm -hmm. he gave it to a bunch of people. Mm -hmm. Eventually the duck called him and invited him to this place, the Blue Orchid Lounge. They decided on this idea that duck was going to do this job for Peter and Frankie would be the Mm middleman. So Frankie then calls Peter, he says, I've met with the duck, and Peter gave him 
some murder instructions. So the instructions were, according to Frankie, that the duck was to go to one of Peter's properties and wait. Then a blonde woman would enter the property with a roll of blueprints stuffed with money. The duck's job was to push that person down the stairs, make it look like an accident, make sure they were dead, and then take the money wrapped in the blueprints with him. Man, how it just seems like pushing someone down a flight of stairs is such a, that just does not seem like a very guaranteed way that they would die. Well, I think there's some beating involved. It's but I'll make it look like an accident. It just sound these people just sound like they're like yeah. I mean, because his the, the other pitches he had for Chaba were like, well, we'll hit her with a car and then drive away, and it'll seem like it was on accident. He's not a great idea, man. I think that that's <laughs> yeah. happened often for him. Like uh-huh. his pitches are not that good. Yeah, and he just thinks like, well, it'll just look like an accident. But again, remember, this is according to Frankie, right? Right. I, I understand. Right. So Frankie then says, after he communicated the murder instructions to the duck, Frankie took him to the property, helped the duck case the property where a door with a broken lock led to a dark stairway in an empty townhouse. He said, this Mm -hmm. is where it's going to happen. Um, After they cased the townhouse, Frankie says he drove the duck. The duck said, I had to go meet with my friends. So he gave the duck a ride to a boxing gym to visit one of his friends a man named Joe DiNardo. Oh, yes. We heard about him. Remember him? He's a bruiser. He beats people up and breaks legs and arms for money. He throws boxing matches for a pretty penny here and there. And last we heard of him, he blew up a seemingly innocent old person's garage, ran away on fire, drove 30 minutes to a hospital, wouldn't give any information, and had burned off plenty of his flesh yeah that's exactly what i've been thinking about this guy i've been waiting for you to bring his ass back (laughs) well he's back baby so the duck he says the duck and joe DiNardo, they started talking Mm -hmm. and frankie stark said after they started getting into it he left the duck at the gym and never saw the duck again a week later the day the stair pushing was scheduled frankie was fixing a couple of piano benches at a workshop and the plan for that night was that Peter and Christine were going to a meeting at around 8 p.m. Peter would then send Christine to the empty townhouse with the fake plans around 9 p.m. That's where she'd meet the duck. Then the duck would push her down the stairs, and that would be that. Now, around 10 p.m., Peter, frantic, ran up on Ferenc at his job site to tell him, hey, man, Christine just came home. She's alive. She's very much not pushed down the stairs and the blueprints are gone, right? She doesn't have them. She gave them to the duck. So apparently the duck had just driven up, met Christine, asked her for the plans and then just driven away, (laughs) jacking Peter for his money. Uh huh. So it seems like so far the duck story to his wife is right. Is is, is corroborated with, Frankie's story, right? right? So Frankie said, he just told Peter, I can't do anything about it. The duck's the duck. You got to forget about this, man, Mm -hmm. right? And he said, Peter just nodded and left. Now, later, Frankie allegedly went to look up the duck because he says, oh, well, you know, after that, I was like, well, he stole the money, but whatever, whatever. But 
I decided to look him up because he owed me some money for drywall. Right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so he says he's he's so innocent. That's what right. he's telling police. I'm so innocent. He just owed me some money for a job he never paid me for. So he said he went looking for this drywall money. He went up to Maria and the duck's home a few times to see if he could get some cash. But the duck never materialized. And Peter Demetir never contacted Frankie again mm-hmm. until the leaky toilet thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Frankie then admitted that when he met with Peter's lawyers that he had only told him about Christine trying to buy the rifle and he left out the whole Peter literally hiring the duck to murder his wife. Yeah, yeah. So police put Frankie in protective custody. Eventually he struck a plea bargain with the Crown, a.k.a. the prosecutor's office, and he was granted immunity in exchange for his testimony. Mm -hmm. So now the prosecution has Frankie Stark locked down. Mm -hmm. The duck is... Somewhere else. <laughs> Has he flown the coop? Is he? Did he leave the pond? I. How dare you? Okay. Did he? Uh, <laughs> no, <I don't> stop. <laughs> Quack something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nailing it. So while all these people were coming forward and the trial is chugging along, the defense is having a little bit of a conflict with each other. Right. So there are two primary lawyers working for Peter Demetier. One of them is the senior lawyer in the law firm, Joe Pomeroy, right? Uh-huh. So he's sort of leading the charge. In he's the, the boss, right? He's the big boss. The junior partner is the lawyer Greenspan, who you have lots of questions about related to your RA, right? So Greenspan is this younger, like upstart lawyer. He's known as being someone who's naturally talented Uh at what he does at criminal defense. And from his perspective, according to our source material, our book, Pomerant is sort of running a dysfunctional defense. All right. So... Essentially, Pomerant's strategy is to say that Christine fell accidentally, but also had an encounter with a secret lover at some point. And then on the same night as those two things was also attacked and murdered, right? By some other person that has nothing to do with Peter Dementier, right? But that's like he's trying to prove a different cause of death when all he has to do is prove the reasonable doubt for his client. Right. So we'll talk about this a little later, but essentially Greenspan is saying from his perspective in a very circumstantial trial, the best thing that they can do as the defense is try to get through the trial as quickly as possible because the longer the trial, you know, rolls out, the longer Uh the trial is extended, the more opportunity the prosecution has to get maybe more evidence that they didn't get before, Uh any type of thing that might make it make it a stronger case. So he's saying stop pitching other ideas and just focus on the fact that our guy was in this car. He went to the mall with a bunch of teenage girls. They bought moccasins. He didn't, he wasn't gross with any of the girls. That was all above the board and came home and found his wife murdered. And there's tons of reasonable doubt that he had anything to do with it. Right. And instead he's kind of drawing it out and trying Mm -hmm. to make a case for each type of thing. So they're, they're at odds with each other. Right. Uh I'm team Greenspan, obviously. (laughs) Right. And at this point in the trial, they've talked a lot about the teens in the car, like you've mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it kind of cuts both ways. All the teens in the car testified that while it wasn't Peter's idea to take them to the mall, Peter aggressively took the responsibility of driving them. Mm. And then he took the dog with him against Christine's witches, even though the dog wasn't even allowed in the mall. But... (laughs) And it was a packed car. Right. I mean, pretty clearly he took the dog so it wouldn't bark. 
Right. So that's I mean, what they're saying. That's uh-huh. not, you know, like that's some of it. But yeah. despite all that, at this point, the dis- the defense was still actually doing okay. You know, nothing mm-hmm. too damning had come out. And even the testimony of the girls in terms of like the shopping in the mall and the alibi with Peter. Yeah. It cut both ways because the girls also testified it was never Peter's idea to go to the mall in the first place. Right, right. And that Peter was really adamant about like being ready to leave the mall half an hour before they even got back, right? Right. So based on the timeline in terms of when Christine was killed, that would have put them there potentially when she was getting killed. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like the blood was literally still flowing down the driveway it, or whatever when the time when the when they got home. It sounds like it happened almost simultaneously really close to each other so you know so like i said that right if he had been like let's go get ice cream hey we're gonna take the scenic route home or something like that exactly that would seem more suspicious exactly exactly Mm -hmm. so even though the defense was divided peter was still feeling pretty chill right Mm -hmm. until (laughs) (laughs) after one of the days was over and he was called into the judge's quarters with his defense team to look over some newly submitted evidence. And that would be the written testimony of Ferenc Frankie Stark. Right? Yes, 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 <laughs> so yes, yes, yes. It's a pretty big deal. That's That was a huge testimony. That feels a little scary, right? Uh-huh. And Judge Grant decided he heard everybody's perspective, right? The defense doesn't want his testimonies, you know, admitted into evidence. The obviously prosecution wants his testimony admitted into evidence. Mm-hmm. So Judge Grant takes the weekend to consider this new evidence. And to Peter and the defense team's horror, on November 4th, Judge Grant added Frankie and the duck's wife, Maria, to the indictment. He rejected all calls for a mistrial. Pomerant tried to get a mistrial literally like every other day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he rejected all calls for a mistrial yeah. and revoked Peter Dementier's bail, ejecting him from the fake leather cushions of the Holiday Inn <laughs> and sending him back to jail. Nice. I mean, I don't know anything about being a judge or law or anything but how the hell could he not let that evidence right stark's testimony was meatier than anything the prosecution had so far uh but one thing we have to remember it also meant that they had to admit that maybe christine also wanted to kill peter (laughs) Uh, and maybe (laughs) she also could have been mixed up with some shady characters in addition to her husband Uh uh around the time of her murder Uh so that's definitely opened some doors right right so you know eventually frankie Stark takes the stand, recaps everything. Christine and the rifle, Peter's request, and a subsequent subsequent dealings with the duck, right? He says everything we've talked about before. Yeah. Maria takes the stand. Her testimony corroborates parts of Frankie's story, obviously. Mm-hmm. Maria, the duck's wife, says, yes, all yeah. these things happened. And finally, a few surprise witnesses helped drive Frankie's version of events home. Another four witnesses came forward, two couples who were family friends of the duck and Maria. Mm -hmm. They said after the duck disappeared, two men came looking for him. Magda and Laszlo Link said, Ferenc Frankie Stark came to their house looking for the duck and left his card. 
And then the next day, another man showed up stating that the duck owed him a job where he wanted his money back. And that man was Peter Dimitir. Damn, right. <laughs> so. George okay. and Helen Fansick were also approached by an irritated Peter Dimitir demanding to know why they were hiding the duck. And the couple was like, bro, what? We're not hiding the duck. The duck's full in the coop. <laughs> But, you know, overall, <laughs> these testimonies... You need to go to jail. <laughs> you should go to jail. These testimonies, they all seem pretty damning, right? Yeah. But at the same time, why would Peter do something so completely stupid in public? Like, yeah. it did seem very odd. You know, so you, it's a little... It's damning testimony, but it seems so dumb for... Peter to be finding all of these middlemen to create, you know, take out this job and do this thing. Right. And then put his face, you know, on it doesn't the make sense at all. Also, it sounds like the duck didn't kill her at all. Well, they're just looking for the duck, but he is incriminating himself if, if the duck and if Maria's testimony and Frankie's testimony is correct. He's, he's connecting himself to all that. Right. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, the two couples really had nothing to gain from incriminating Peter. Their testimony would not benefit their friend, the duck, right? Yeah, yeah. And it didn't really benefit anyone, right? Except for the prosecution. Yeah. They didn't get a reward or anything like that. Like there was no reason to lie that would benefit them sure. in fingering Peter. Fingering Peter. <laughs> <laughs> Our spinoff podcast. You're so stupid. <laughs> Tasteless buttholes fingering Peter. <laughs> Uh, however, at the end of the day, this portion of the trial ended on a totally weird note. So we're wrapping up, right? Mm -hmm. It's feeling like it's got a bow on it. There's a lot of corroborating witnesses saying Frankie's statement is probably true, right? Yeah. But upon cross-examination, Peter's lawyer, Joe Pomerant, had an ace up his sleeve. The duck, right, had another alias. So one of his aliases, he had multiple aliases. Uh -huh. One of them was Jimmy Orr. Now, apparently, neither Peter or Frankie uh -huh. knew about this other alias that he used. But it was one that the duck used fairly often. It was definitely in circulation. Now, guess who had an appointment with Jimmy Orr written down in their calendar for April 2nd, 1973? Christine? Christine Dimitir. Oh shit! April. Wait, how? When did she die? July eighteenth. So she had an appointment. <laughs> yeah. With the man. Right. I get it. She wanted to meet the duck too. Right. AKA but Jimmy Orr. Nobody else knew him by that name, so she had to have gotten the duck's name from someone else. All right. Okay. Okay. So what's up now? <laughs> <laughs> After all this, finally. On the 12th of November, Judge Grant agreed it was definitely time to sequester the jury. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, this is way, way too much. It just uh -huh. keeps being like, oh, and then there's this guy. And then there's this guy, right? Uh -huh. So we decided to sequester the jury and they sent them to now Motel Purgatory, wherever that may be. They have their own. Not the Holiday Inn, but uh -huh. some sort uh -huh. of adjacent orange carpeted hellscape, right? <laughs> okay. 
And, you know, just for the record, Judge Grant did not want to subject the jury to this type of thing because he knew a thing or two about motel purgatory, okay? Back at the Holiday Inn, people were really starting to get on each other's nerves. Peter could uh-huh. not stand his lawyer, Joe Pomerant, anymore, who was always bossing around and liked to have conferences in his hotel room shirtless. So he'd be like, everybody get in my room. And then he'd take off his shirt and walk back and forth. So Peter was like, do not like that guy. Uh-huh. Joe Pomerant was in the process of divorcing his wife, so he was acting like an asshole the whole time. And then... Judge Grant had some gallbladder problems, so he hated the food at the Holiday Inn. Uh-huh. Like anytime they gave him too much butter, he would have like horrible diarrhea. It's just like <laughs> this awful, like, he'd be like, stop doing that. They're like, listen, dude, this is the Holiday Inn, okay? <laughs> just like going to court with your roommates. It is. They're all like mad. It's and all family court at this point. To add even more pressure, while this is happening, Judge Grant's wife actually fell down the stairs at their house and broke her hip. So she ended up being okay. Oh my God. But it was just Judge Grant is like, everyone shut up. <laughs> right? Like, and by the way, that's what happens when someone falls down the stairs. Right. They break their hip. They don't die. Their brain doesn't come out of their skull. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Wasn't that the that hijinks documentary we saw about like Durst or whatever? J- the name? Jinx. The Jinx. Yeah. Wasn't he like, oh, she fell down the stairs and that's. That's a different story. Oh, that's different. Yeah. But that was also a crazy story. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm just mixing it all together. Well, I'm calling it hijinks, which I really. <laughs> Sorry. I think there's been some movies where someone does fall down the stairs in a really violent way and like cracks their head and it's really like visceral and it seems like a way you can die. It is a way you can die. I get that there are stairs that are steep and long enough. And if you fell down, you know, one of those flights of stairs that like, you know, Ace Ventura does the slinky down at the beginning of one of those pet detective movies that sure you would die from there. But how many flights of in how many houses would actually kill you, Muriel? Well, how on earth would I know how to answer that question? <laughs> Just say, I think it's. I a, think there is an answer to that. I think it's stuff. a dumbass way to try to kill someone. Okay, great. Anyway, mm-hmm. when we talk about what's going on at the Holiday Inn, yes. right, you can see that there's tensions everywhere, and we've kind of already touched on this, but right. Peter's defense team is on edge with each other. Mm. And Pomerant is trying to push this accidental fall thing super, super hard. Greenspan is thinking, man, this is not the way to go, right? Pomerant decides, I'm really going to go hard. He called expert after expert to the stand to talk about Christine's death in graphic detail, right? <sighs> with all of them basically saying she had been violently beaten. But he's trying to find some way to show like, maybe, maybe, maybe uh-huh. it could be other things. But in showing people these photographs and, and constantly going over it, it's like maybe re-emphasizing how brutal the killing was. Yeah. So it feels kind of, at least from Greenspan's product, uh, perspective. perspective. It's like counterproductive. It kind of pre- yeah, or prejudicial, right? Uh-huh. Well, what does pre- prejudicial mean? Just like they're, uh, like, pre- it's prejudicial in that it's kind of making the jury... Uh, Prejudiced? Against Peter, okay. right? It's kind of reinforcing some sort of connection between this brutal killing and, and Peter. Even mm-hmm. if his goal was to say, oh, well, it could have happened different ways. They're just exposed to so much of the brutality of the crime. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Then, Pomerant decided to complicate things even further by bringing in Henry Robert Williams to this stand. Henry Robert Williams? Mm -hmm. On August 19th, 1974, a little over a year 
after Christine was murdered. A 16-year-old girl named Judith Sheldon was hitchhiking home from an art exhibit in Toronto when she was picked up by a friendly-looking 20-something man driving a brand-new 1972 Dodge Charger. Mm -hmm. Henry Robert Williams drove Judith Sheldon to a field, sexually assaulted her, and stabbed her several times with a hunting knife. Williams was in the process of covering Judith's body with rocks when an ambulance drove by and spooked him off. So he figured she was dead. He's buried her with rocks and ran away. Williams didn't realize that Judith was still alive. So the girl pushed her way out of the rocks. Oh, God bless her. Stood up and walked down into the road and flagged down help. And it it happened to be an ambulance or the ambulance already... I think the ambulance was not there anymore, okay. but the sound of the, like the siren sure. spooked him and he ran off. Okay, okay. Judith was able to give police a description of the Dodge Charger and Williams was arrested the next day. Mm-hmm. In the interrogation room, William confessed to the attempted murder of Judith Sheldon and the murders of Constance Dickey and Nita Novak. So those are the two Mississauga girls who were killed right around the time Christine Demeter was murdered. Yeah, okay. So those unsolved murders you were talking about last time. Right. Police had found the local serial rapist and murderer that had been terrorizing the the area. Mm -hmm. Williams described killing Constance and Nita as satisfying an urge that began with his first child. So he said as soon as his first child was born, this is just something that he wanted to do. He admitted to attacking all three girls, but... He was adamant that he did not know or kill Christine Dimitir. Mm-hmm. Parts of his MO fit the crime, like how he used a different method to kill each girl. There was strangulation and stabbing, different things like that. Yeah. But he targeted females who were either hitchhiking or walking alone and didn't have any history of breaking into homes or garages or things like that. He Uh was more just targeting solo people who were near a field or in the woods or something like that. Sorry, but they called him in to testify in this trial? Yeah. The defense did. Yeah. So it seemed as if Pomerant wasn't really bringing him in to prove that he killed Christine, but rather to cast some doubt with the presence of a known serial killer in the area at the time. So Pomerantz's angle was saying, like, now we know there was a serial killer and there were these unsolved murders that happened and Uh this serial killer was there. So they all, you know, interrogated the serial killer. They all questioned the serial killer. But at the end of the day, he said, I did not kill Christine. Yeah. So that's Pomerantz's style, right, of casting doubt is to bring the guy in and... Bring him to testify on the witness stand. Right, to show that there are killers out there, but this is definitely not the killer. Yes. Am I missing why that's smart? (laughs) I don't, that seems not smart. It's like, hey, let's get everyone in here who didn't kill her. It's empty (laughs) to all the jails. I think he just said, he wanted to say, hey, remember there was a serial killer out there at the time. Just remember that things happened. Uh Uh-huh, and he's taking responsibility for a couple of the murders, but there are more besides that. There were more with that. Yeah, that. there's like five unsolved murders at the time. Right. And so I he's... think Pomerantz just saying like, hey, man, crazy crap was happening around this time, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's something defensible about it, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same as time. As a tactic. Yeah, as a tactic. But, you know, at least Greenspan's perspective was. This is dumb. This is dumb. It's taking too much time. And now you're trying to make the point that she accidentally fell, but there's a serial killer. Like, yeah. it's just too much. Right. 
So anyway, that's kind of, but it's interesting because there was a serial killer. Yeah, I, I mean, man, I'm glad that at least some of those victims were like, <laughs> there's some closure to that because yeah. that was just horrible. Yeah. So it was around this time that guy led Norman Virag, a.k.a. The Mr. Doc? X. Okay. <laughs> Mr. X came back for a little more action. Mm-hmm. Now, a month prior, he had told investigators, right, that the word on the street was that Christine had been killed by the duck, which ended up yielding some valuable witnesses for the prosecution. Yeah. But now, his memory had changed. <laughs> he had come back with another story. Uh-huh. So according to Mr. X's revised account, the day Christine was murdered, July 18th, 1973, was also a very memorable day for Mr. X because it had been the day that he had been deported from the United States for entering the country illegally. So Mr. X said on July 18th, 1973, after deplaning in Toronto, he went straight to the Woodbine racetrack. And it was there that he ran into his old buddy, the duck. He said the duck was super happy. He was spending a shit ton of money and making huge bets. The duck told Mr. X he won the money by playing cards. Mm -hmm. You know, Mr. X told investigators he guessed that he saw the duck spend around $3,000, which would be around $18,000 in today's money. Damn, yeah. So the next day, Mr. X is nursing a hangover. He's hanging out and he sees the duck at the Silver Dollar Lounge in Toronto. And he says that the duck looked totally bummed out, right? So he walked over. He bought the duck a Roman Coke. He's like, what's wrong, bro? And after some back and forth, Mr. X said the duck replied, well, we did the most stupidest and terrible thing in my life. We killed Dimitir's wife. There were three of us. We made a mess of her in the garage, and my share was $10,000. Now, off the bat, the story sounded doubtful, right? Mm -hmm. Murderers don't go around telling people who don't even know their real names. Like, he doesn't know this guy's (laughs) real name. They don't go around telling people who don't even know their real names that they committed a murder, right? Mm -hmm. Mr. X is also a well-known snitch, snitch, right? And Mr. X also got a $2,000 reward from police for his incriminating snitch. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. it's like, feels very shady, right? Well, he does also go by the name Mr. X. He might as well be wearing like a V for Vendetta mask or something. This guy's like just like made of shade. Right. He's made of shade, you know. And at this point so far, the prosecution had already established a timeline, right? The established timeline was that the duck jacked Demeter for his money. Frankie Stark put a little half-ass pressure on him, at least to share it with him or whatever. Mm -hmm. The duck got stressed and headed back to Hungary. But there's nothing to say that the duck didn't return to finish the job before disappearing completely. So what they're saying is Mr. X's story doesn't necessarily discredit anything that Frankie Stark said, right? right? Yeah. So despite the fact that they think Mr. X might be full of crap, they decided to call Mr. X to the stand and let the defense deal with the holes in his story during cross-examination. They thought, fine, it doesn't hurt us and it doesn't necessarily help them. So let's mm-hmm. just throw them up there, right? So on November 15th, prosecutor John Greenwood announced that Mr. X would testify 
and requested the judge to kick out all the spectators in the courtroom so everyone could preserve Mr. X's identity. So the judge reads the transcript of Mr. X's statement and has this big eye roll, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> he decides to allow everything to happen, but he rules that Mr. X couldn't repeat any of the fake sounding conversations on the stand that he had. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. he could talk about meeting the duck. Yeah. And he could talk about seeing the duck spend money and he could talk about the duck looking sad. Right? Okay. He says he can talk about doing that, but no verbatim conversations. And nobody's going anywhere. I'm not going to clear the spectators out of here. This <laughs> yeah. guy's full of crap, right? Yeah, yeah. So... The compromise was Mr. X could wear a terrifying white ski mask. To oh, boom. V for Vendetta. <laughs> Called it. And the judge said you could call him Tom Smith. <laughs> so the ski mask is actually really scary. It looks like a mummy mask. Yeah, yeah. Um, so despite protest from the defense, the masked Mr. X testified that on July 18th, 1973, he saw the duck spending an exorbitant amount of money at the Woodbine racetrack and that he saw him in a bar the day after on the 19th, despondent, after which the duck quickly left for Hungary. Uh-huh. So pretty damning testimony, except for one little thing okay. that nobody knew yeah. and didn't come out at the trial. The Woodbine racetrack was closed on July 18th, 1973. <laughs> it wasn't even open. But that but that didn't have like the that didn't come out during cross examination? Nope. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's pretty wild, huh? <laughs> Mr. X is just out there making shit yeah. up. That's hilarious. You got two thousand dollars, you know. <laughs> So now we're moving on to Chaba, right? Chaba takes a stand again mm -hmm. to tell the, the jury about everything, right? About how for five years he listened to his old friend Peter plan to kill his wife, how Peter implied several times that Chaba would be paid around $10,000 if he helped him do it, and how knowing all of this, Chaba still flew to Toronto and lived with Peter and Christine for about 17 months, right? Mm -hmm. He went over the alleged nutty plots of Peter, like not only gruesome, but stupid plots, right? Electrifying filter equipment to electrocute her in their swimming pool. The fake break-in with the double shooting. Chaba also remembered another one that was Peter's idea, which mm -hmm. was setting up a bunch of fake construction uh, equipment on the side of the road. And then Peter would accidentally crash into it, decapitating Christine. <laughs> he just had a lot of plans, right? <laughs> Yeah, it just sounds like someone who's just inventing things. Like, yeah, but it's a coffee machine that flies around with you right. and just brews you coffee all the time. They're like, you know, okay, how are you going to make it fly? It just does it. You're the idea, man. That's why I'm <laughs> going to pay you this alleged $10,000, right? Yeah. So the choppy audio tapes in, in Hungarian with the cars driving through them weren't any sort of slam dunk in terms of evidence. They're vaguely incriminating, but nothing super substantial. Yeah. But... It did boost the prosecution when Judge Grant ruled the tapes admissible. Yeah. And that had happened just a few days earlier. So you've got Chaba's testimony is now bolstered, right, mm -hmm. by these tapes. Yeah. The cross-examination for Chaba was brutal with Pomerant basically basing his entire strategy on taking Chapa down as a credible witness. What a terrible friend, you know, someone who has no morals. How could you do that to Christine was yeah. the line of, of reasoning. You seem like a terrible person. Right. Ah, blah, 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 right? Chaba's reasoning, just so we all know, 
his reasoning for going through with everything and going along with Peter and mm-hmm. not reporting him to police was that he claimed he wanted to keep Christine alive. So oh, God. as long as he was the one shooting down Peter's ideas, Christine would remain alive. So uh-huh, his plan uh-huh. was, I'm just going to always tell him it's a bad idea and he'll never kill Christine. And just keep hanging out with him and always hang out with him. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. He said if it ever came down to it, he had a plan all set up. He was going to tell two lawyers half the story and then tell Peter if anything ever happened to either him or Christine, it would all come out. That would uh-huh. trigger this sort of investigation, right? <laughs> okay. But unfortunately, Peter murdered Christine before he got his plan together. Mm-hmm. So he says he flew to Toronto and lived with them to save Christine's <laughs> life, <laughs> which seems like a stretch, but that was his answer. Yeah. Now, as the trial progressed, Sergeant Chris O'Toole one of the investigating officers on the case couldn't give up on the idea that they still didn't have any real lead on the actual physical killer. And O'Toole wanted to check out one more guy. He wanted to check out Joe DiNardo. Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Joe DiNardo, the boxer come garage exploder from the first episode, right? Buddy of the duck, best friend of the police shootout guy, right. Laszlo Eper. Right, the part of the Hungarian mafia. Right, right, right. So after they had found the piece of paper with Superintendent Taggart and Peter Dimitar's names on it in Laszlo Eper's room yeah. after he was killed in the shootout with police, yeah. police actually did question Joe DiNardo. They went to the hospital and tried to talk to him. Now, DiNardo was still in the hospital recovering from setting himself on fire and said he knew nothing about Peter Dimitir, right? Mm-hmm. But when Donato's name came up again in Frankie Stark's testimony, mm-hmm. remember Frankie Stark said that after he walked the duck through the plan to push Christine down the stairs, he drove the duck to meet with Donato at the boxing gym, yeah. right? Police, namely Sergeant O'Toole, decided to pay DiNardo yet another visit, right? Mm -hmm. By O'Toole's reasoning, between Frankie the Duck and DiNardo, DiNardo was the only dude with actual muscle, right? Yeah. And... You mean literal muscle, like the strong one. Right. Uh And he was massive, right? And he broke bones for a living. Right. So maybe... When they went to the boxing gym, they were trying to pull DiNardo into the deal. Yeah. And he figured DiNardo had to know something. So Joe DiNardo generally had a rep for being sort of dumb and broke <laughs> most of the time, right? He's a muscle guy, not Poor a strategy guy. Is guy. he Italian, DiNardo? No, no, he's a Hungarian. Okay. So he's a muscle guy, not a strategy guy, right? Uh-huh, yeah. But he did have an excellent and reputable lawyer, a man named Arthur Maloney. So in the first week of November, O'Toole contacted Maloney to see if he could set up a meeting with DiNardo. So DiNardo refused to meet with police, but he said he would meet with his lawyer to talk to his lawyer on behalf of police, right? Okay. So DiNardo was in the Gulef jail for unrelated charges when on November 19th, Arthur Maloney, his lawyer, paid him a visit. Maloney said... If he had any information regarding Christine Dimitir's murder, he should do something good for once in his life and just say something. Joe Nardo considered his lawyer's words and reluctantly admitted that he knew who killed Christine. Mm-hmm. And it had absolutely nothing to do with Peter Dimitir. <laughs> 
And next week. <laughs> you asshole. I fucking do it. <laughs> Had nothing to do with Peter. <laughs> next week, we'll continue this saga with Donardo's story, the Ducks' confession Boo. to Hungarian police, the verdict, and then uh-huh. a bunch of kidnapping and arson. <laughs> You stupid ass. All right. Great. You want to give your resources real quick? I don't think we said it at the beginning of this episode. Our source material for this episode is the book by Persons Unknown, The Strange Death of Christine Dimitir by George Jonas and Barbara Emile. Who are also a married couple doing true crime. Yeah. Poor unfortunate souls. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to Muriel's Murders. Thank you to Bill and Donovan for recommending this episode. Thank you to Dawn for her uh, voice memo DM. Muriel did all the research and I did all the editing, recording, and post-production. And this podcast was recorded in our living room. To help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, please sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders. Find us on social media at Muriel's Murders on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube, and Fanbase. Our DMs are open. And I think Don might have just had a little bit of a game-changing moment. You know what I mean? Send us a voice memo. Maybe you'll end up in an episode. You can also email us, murals at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Please rate and review Muriel's Murders on Apple Podcasts. Listen, guys, it really does help us grow. And if you're listening to Spotify, you can add this episode to a playlist of podcasts you think your friends should tune into and then send it to them and threaten them. Just kidding. (laughs) But all jokes aside, sharing this podcast with the people in your life, either uh, who you know in flesh and blood or through online communities, is huge for us, and it really means a lot to us when you spread the word. Our music is by Mario Castellini. Find him on Instagram at Castellini Beats. Thank you to Ryan and Ryan at Campfire Media. And if you want more Nick and Muriel minus the murderiness of this podcast, check out our non-true crime podcast. It's called Hella in Your 30s. That's it. Bye-bye. I'm Brian Husky. I'm bald. And I'm Charlie Sanders, and I'm also bald. And we host Bald Talk on the Campfire Media Network. Bald Talk is the podcast where two bald comedians talk to anyone bald about being bald. But this show isn't just for baldies, Brian. Harrow's will love it, too. Bald Talk gets into vulnerability, vanity, insecurity, and self-acceptance, reminding us that we all have our respective bald spots. Not that bald spots are a bad thing. No way. I mean, my entire head is one big bald spot. It is one huge, beautiful bald spot, Charlie. Get Bald Talk on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, I I have like a little bit of hair, but not like you. Like you're really bald. I'm truly bald. Great. I mean, it's I'm great. balder than it. you. You are balder than me. Only on Bald Talk. Campfire. <laughs>